Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Robert Rawson, Jr. of the class of 1966, the chairman of the executive committee of the Board of Trustees of Princeton University will, will preside at this special convocation for the installation of our new president. Thank you and good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. The invocation will be delivered by Frederick Borsch, Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Los Angeles and a trustee of Princeton University. Bishop Borsch. Creator Spirit, in whom we live and move and have our being, we come together this day remembering more than 10 generations and 18 presidents of this college and university. And we are moved to offer gratitude for the learning and discovery, the growth in comprehension and service that have been nurtured and developed here. We give thanks for the diversity and fullness of the spirit of inquiry, the curiosity and freedom that have come to characterize Princeton. We are appreciative of the many teachers and trustees, benefactors, and particularly today our presidents, who have provided wisdom, care, and guidance through good and challenging times to fulfill so many promises of our past. Creative spirit, sovereign and inspiration of life, blessed for the simplicity and complexity of all that is, for the vastness and small beyond our measure, worlds within worlds and ourselves in the midst, aware of ourselves thinking and so a people of language, story, responsibility, and love. We today look forward to our future. And we pray that informed intelligence and compassion may come together to bring us wisdom. We ask that insight into the most basic processes of life may enable healing and enhancement for living. Reconciling spirit, mindful of the terror and tragedy that have come into our lives, we ask that our lamentation reach to you and that our prayer for a world of greater peace and understanding be heard. In honor of those who have died and all who mourn, and the many who responded with great courage and compassion, I ask that we hold them up together with us in a time of silent and earnest prayer. We pray that this will be a university where diverse people may share the knowledge of different cultures and lore, their very human fears and hopes with one another, with one another and then others in our world. Through our learning in the sciences and engineering, in politics and poetry, music, literature, art, and history, may we together achieve a shared humanity that may make Princeton a community of learning ever more welcoming to teachers and students, rich with their many stories and experience. Go between spirit, giving in stress and sayability, music and mathematics to our world. On this day of Thanksgiving and beginning, we pray a blessing on our new president, Shirley for strength of mind and heart, a blessing of courage and wisdom, 
that in times of challenge and opportunity, she may know our companionship and support in life's great adventure of making place and opportunity for others. In laboratory and library, on playing fields and in studios, in carols and chapel and precepts, in each conversation and concert, may there be inspiration for those who teach and those who learn. To Shirley and her family, and to all who work here, and all who bear Princeton's name, give, we pray, your quiet courage and loving service in this and every nation. Spirit of all life, that in your name this university may flourish. Amen. Thank you, Bishop Borch. Please be seated. As chair of the executive committee of the Princeton University trustees, I have the pleasure today to welcome all of you to this installation ceremony. To assure a smooth transition over the summer at their meeting immediately preceding commencement this June, the trustees administered the oath of office to Shirley Tillman as president of Princeton University. What I mean to say that is that all that Shirley has accomplished between then and now has been legitimate. But we also felt that for a, an occasion as important as this one, that is as significant for the university as this is, that we should take occasion to celebrate, celebrate it not only privately, but also publicly, and that is the purpose of our gathering together today. We are surrounded by friends of Princeton, by members of the Princeton community, broadly speaking, and also by friends and members of the President's family, including her mother, Shirley Caldwell, and as well, distinguished guests. The distinguished guests who represent rep re all institutions of higher education from around the country, as well as organizations that further the causes of scientific and medical research, are all here and are too many to be recognized individually. But we are delighted to have all of those persons with us to bear witness today. But I do want to welcome in particular our emeritus presidents, Robert Goheen, William Bowen, and Harold Shapiro, respectively the 16th, 17th, and 18th presidents of Princeton University. I ask them to stand so we can thank them for their half a century of service. planning today's ceremony, we have been mindful of Princeton's powerful sense of community, as seen both on this campus and in enduring ties among Princetonians throughout the world. Our new president becomes the leader of this far-flung Princeton family, and we have invited representatives of the various constituencies of the university community to come forward and to greet her, and I will e introduce each of them in turn. First, on behalf of the undergraduate students of Princeton, Joseph Cochin, a senior concentrating in the Woodrow Wilson I'm sorry, a chemical engineer and president of the undergraduate student government. He told me he wasn't willing to switch departments if I made a mistake. 
In any event, he's in chemical engineering. I welcome Joseph Cochin. Joe. As I began to think about what I would say today, I had a revelation. I realized that I might be the only person to speak today who has already had experience as a president at Princeton. <laughs> With all due respect to the assembly of speakers, all of whom are much better regarded than I, there are some things very unique to presidencies at Princeton of which I am more well suited to speak. With that, President Tillman, I'd like to offer you the following insights to help your transition from faculty member to president. Now, as I have a semester's worth of experience on you, <laughs> I've been able to get a good handle on what Princeton students really care about. As email has made communication so simple and direct, I've received thousands of messages from undergraduates on a variety of subjects that they hold dear. I've compiled a list of the most pressing of those, and I just want to say that this list is not fabricated. These are actual messages that I've collected. The first is on a subject that most students hold near and dear, food. I've discovered that, in many respects, food is the most important part of a student's day. This student wrote, I would not take the time to involve you in this if it didn't affect me so much. Very often recently, the grill at Frist has run out of their usual white cheese for their cheeseburgers <laughs> and used American cheese instead. Those cheeseburgers are my only salvation for good food on campus, and when they resort to using American cheese, it honestly makes me very depressed. <laughs> Can you make sure that they don't run out of the white kind of cheese? Or if they're going to have a backup, it should at least be cheddar cheese. <laughs> President Tillman, I believe that the color of cheese should be foremost on your list of priorities. Perhaps you should have a subcommittee on university cheese procedures. That is not to say, however, that there aren't other pressing issues on campus. Although many students have voiced their concerns about the amount of construction that has been going on recently, some would like to see a little more. One in particular wrote, I think we should have swing sets on campus. It is an idea I've been pondering for a long time, but it's time I bring it public. How great would that be? Students here are so stressed out all the time, and swings are one of the best remedies, in addition to being a great study break activity. Who would not want a swing set, or ideally multiple swing sets, but perhaps I should take one step at a time? We've all learned to take turns. Why not put that knowledge to use? And I'm, taking, I'm talking a big swing set with long, adult-sized seats and chains. Nothing fancy, just tall. Now, to help you deal with these pressing issues from the perspective of a Princeton student, I have also compiled a small survival pack of sorts. In it, I have included things that, as a senior, I think are essential for all freshmen, of which are one in terms of your presidency, a fact that you articulated to the class of 2005 during opening exercises. A lanyard for your keys. Apparently, you can't be a Princeton freshman without carrying your keys around your neck on a wide, obnoxiously colored lanyard. Never mind that no one else, no upperclassmen, no professors, no one uses these things. They're essential for freshmen. Hoagie Haven, number 17. This is the best cure for late-night hunger, but make sure you remember the numbers when you step through the door. The employees there don't mess around and will not put up with indecision. A J. Crew catalog. <laughs> While everyone claims that they never signed up for it, it must belong to whoever lived here before me. You nevertheless find them sneaking peeks through their biology book. And have you seen the new winter line? Fabulous. 
eating club passes. I've gathered a collection of all the important club passes so that you don't have to waste time trying to find your brother's roommate's girlfriend's sister's cousin to beg for a pass this weekend. All of that aside, however, I do have one serious item with which to present you, and that is the collective well wishes of the undergraduate student body. As I told you last spring, I received numerous messages from students who were overjoyed to hear that this school that they loved so much had been left in such capable hands. Princeton prides itself on its commitment to undergraduates, and those undergraduates stand together today to wish you nothing but the very best in the years to come. President Tillman, on behalf of the classes of 2002, 2003, 2004, and 2005, on behalf of students who hail from 48 states, from 38 countries, and who represent the best and brightest of what the world has to offer, welcome and good luck. Thank you, Joe Cochin. I next ask you to join me in welcoming Matthew Faust, a graduate student in the Department of Politics and president of the Graduate Student Government, who will now welcome our new president. Matthew. Good afternoon. On behalf of the graduate student body, it is both an honor and a pleasure to have this opportunity to formally welcome Shirley Tillman as the 19th president of Princeton University. As a visionary leader in molecular biology and the life sciences and a member of the Princeton University faculty, President Tillman has already, has already developed a reputation among graduate students for giving valuable advice and guidance. We are confident that, in much the same way that she has offered direction and assistance to her students, she will offer many years of outstanding leadership to this great university. We have, in fact, already witnessed her leadership in action. We have all been affected by, both directly and indirectly, the tragic events of September 11th. During this difficult time, President Tillman has demonstrated her commitment to the university community by forging a balanced, forward-thinking, and campus-wide response to this crisis. Princeton remains a unified community where diversity of thought and experience are not just tolerated, but celebrated. We have a duty and a responsibility in the service to this nation and all peoples to maintain such a community, to work constantly to improve it, and to offer its ideals to the larger world community. I sincerely believe that President Tillman's leadership will guide us on our journey towards those goals. Graduate students at Princeton are lucky to be part of such a vibrant university community. And while being a graduate student can be hard work, we are fortunate to have an administration that listens to our concerns and is always striving to make the graduate student experience at Princeton even better. I know that I speak for all graduate students when I say that we are very excited about our future at the university, and we look forward to the leadership that President Shirley Tillman 
will bring to the entire Princeton community as we meet the challenges of this new century. Thank you, and once more, welcome from the graduate student government and the entire graduate student body. Thank you, Matthew. On behalf of the staff members of the university, we now welcome Associate Provost Joanne Mitchell to express her greetings. It is a very special honor and a great pleasure to convey the greetings of the staff to President Shirley Tillman on the occasion of her installation as Princeton's 19th president. Her election to the staff represents yet another achievement in a magnificent career, and we are delighted to count her as one of us. The staff of the university play a pivotal role in supporting and sustaining all facets of the university's aspirations in teaching, research, and service. Collectively, we have approximately 35,000 years of service to this great university and have roles, responsibilities, experiences, and expertise that are as diverse as we are. During the course of the 15 years that she has served as a member of Princeton's faculty, President Tillman has undoubtedly had an opportunity to witness the loyalty and dedication of the university's more than 3,200 staff members. Each of us whether we work to create and maintain the spaces and places that are both functionally and aesthetically pleasing on the main campus and at the Plasma Physics Laboratory, whether we are responsible for the health and safety of students, faculty, and staff, as well as thousands of visitors to the campus each year, whether we are curators or conservators of the university's world-class art collection, whether we nurture relationships with alumni and friends of the university or build bridges to the world outside Fitzrandolph Gate, whether we maintain hundreds of miles of data cabling that allow Princetonians to transmit 1.2 email messages every week, whether we deliver the more than 2 million pieces of snail mail annually to the campus, whether we are preparing and serving more than 60,000 meals every week, whether we coach, advise, counsel, or mentor students, whether we catalog and shelve the six million volumes that are housed in the university's libraries, whether we process more than 22,000 applications for admission every year or handle 29,000 requests for transcripts, whether we process more than 250,000 checks annually, or whether we manage the university's most valuable resources, its people, we are proud of our Princeton connection. For more than two and a half centuries, the myriad contributions of the staff, both large and small, have helped to make this the finest research university in the world. We are fortunate that the trustees have selected a president who values the staff and recognizes us as a quiet and powerful force that supports and nurtures an incredibly talented student body, facilitates the teaching and research of an extraordinary faculty, and takes very seriously the stewardship of the university's vast physical, fiscal, and human resources. Since the moment she took office in June, President Tillman's inclusive leadership style has invited the exchange of ideas, her ability to listen as she formulates policies or makes difficult decisions has conveyed her appreciation of the expertise and experiences of others. 
And most of all, her warm and engaging manner with all she encounters demonstrates her respect for the dignity and worth of each member of this community. Since the devastating events of September 11th, President Tillman has often spoken about the strength and cohesion of the Princeton family. And it is with great joy that we welcome her as a new head of this family and look forward to working with her to mobilize its members to support the mission of the university. President Tillman, we, the members of the staff of Princeton University, affirm our commitment to the university and pledge to aid you in building on its already impressive strengths as you endeavor to lead it to even higher heights. We are confident that, under your leadership, Princeton will continue to flourish. Thank you, Joanne. I next have the pleasure of introducing Joseph H. Taylor, the Dean of the Faculty, and James S. McDonald, Distinguished Professor of Physics, who will greet President Tillman on behalf of her colleagues on the faculty. Dean Taylor. Dear Shirley, I have been asked to say a few words of greeting on behalf of your faculty and your professional research, technical, and library staffs. This is an easy and most pleasant assignment because of the warmth and depth of enthusiasm with which we do wholeheartedly welcome you to your new position and responsibilities. You have been one of us for many years. We know that you, too, believe that in a university whose mission is the cre creation, preservation, and transmission of knowledge, having the very most capable people on your staffs is a prerequisite for success. We know that you will encourage us and prod us to build on our strengths and address our weaknesses. You will help us to attract the best and brightest students to come here to study, grow, and engage with us in the intellectual pursuits of research and scholarship. I know firsthand something about the personal sacrifices you have made in agreeing to take on your new role at Princeton. We are asking you now to be the leader of our institution and of the people that comprise it. I know how much more difficult these tasks can be than the science that you and I have practiced and taught for most of our adult lives. More difficult, I am sure, than the scholarly pursuits of all of those on whose behalf I am speaking. You will yearn on occasion to have again the opportunity to bury yourself in your lab for 18 hours a day, engaged with your colleagues and students in the pursuit of some new or perhaps long unsolved problem in mammalian genetics. We hope and trust that you will still be able to find, from time to time, opportunities to spend your weekend with nothing to read but the latest issue of Nature Genetics, Molecular Cell Biology, and the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. <laughs> we welcome you so warmly because we are confident that you will show the same qualities of wisdom, humanity, and willingness to tackle tough problems that you have shown us for so many years as a scientist and teacher. You have already had a great impact on this university. We all work in a better place because of things that you have accomplished while among us. We look forward to many fruitful years of working together with you in the nation's service and in the service of all nations. For myself, I only ask that sometime in the not too distant future, you allow me the satisfaction of arriving at work before you do in the morning.
Finally, representing the broader community of higher education, we are truly honored to have with us today Richard Levin, the president of Yale University, who will extend his greetings. President Levin. Oh, I'm sorry. Pardon me. I skipped the script. Roll it, roll it back. First, I need to introduce a distinguished representative of the, the alumni of the university, Diane de Cordova, of the class of 1983, the president of the Alumni Association of Princeton. Diane. President Tillman, trustees, and all of the Princeton community here today, as president of the Alumni Association of Princeton University, which represents all 70,000 alumni, I'm delighted to bring greetings and congratulations to you, President Tillman, on your installation as Princeton's 19th president. Alumni status came in a flurry to President Tillman last spring when nine classes made her an honorary member. Now she has more class affiliations than any of her predecessors. Clearly, the Princetonians have enthusiastically embraced her appointment. Her membership ties range from the class of 1941 through the class of 2001, including my own class of 1983. <laughs> the great class of 1983. <laughs> Alumni play many roles to help the university and you, President Tillman. We are your eager counselors, ambassadors, critics, and cheerleaders. We serve as trustees, interview potential students, offer career advice, provide opportunities for community service, tirelessly express our opinions, and maintain the strong Princeton culture of giving back and coming back. You have clearly demonstrated your appreciation for the role that alumni play in the life of the university through your outreach to us. You have taught an alumni studies course on science and technology, led an alumni college on behavioral genetics, participated in Saturday pregame lectures, and in many courses on the Human Genome Project at reunions. Now, even alumni who predated your time here can refer to you as their favorite biology professor. You have also crisscrossed this country and Canada to meet with alumni associations from Boston to Los Angeles and Jacksonville to Vancouver. Our alumni are spread geographically, but no doubt you notice that we share a love of this place and the ideals for which it stands. As we assemble here today, we are acutely aware that a new era has dawned, not just here at Princeton, but globally. As a member of the university's renowned faculty, you have already shown your leadership in researching and teaching matters of concern to humanity. In this new era, in your role as president, we know that you will ensure that Princeton continues to educate caring, responsible citizens of the world as this becomes even more important. We look to you for leadership in making our motto Princeton in the nation's service and in the service of all nations, real. So, President Tillman, in recognition of all that you have done for Princeton and all that you will do, I pledge the support of alumni to you and to Princeton over the years ahead. Congratulations and best wishes.
Now, finally, a man who deserves to be introduced not just once, but twice. <laughs> Representing the world of higher education, the president of Yale University, Richard Levin. President Levin. I am truly honored to be with you today and to extend on behalf of colleges and universities throughout the nation and around the globe the warmest greetings to Shirley Tillman as she assumes the leadership of this great institution. The entire community of higher education is grateful to Princeton's trustees for their inspired choice of a distinguished scientist and independent thinker, a woman well-suited to take a prominent place in the great line of modern presidents of Princeton from Woodrow Wilson and Harold Dodds to Robert Goheen, William Bowen, and Harold Shapiro. By all objective measures, Princeton is poised for an era of almost unbounded opportunity. You are blessed with abundant financial resources, a faculty of exceptional distinction, devoted alumni, and students the equal of any university in the land. You are well prepared to undertake your planned expansion of enrollment and to invest in broadening the scope of your outstanding research and teaching programs. We all hope that the course of events set in motion on September 11th will neither diminish these opportunities nor deter Princeton's progress. But there's no doubt that these recent developments present difficult challenges, not only for our nation, but for its great universities as well. In the short term, all of us must help our students cope with what is for their generation a first experience of national tragedy. It is for those of us who have lived through the assassination of a president, his brother, and Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., to help today's students appreciate fully the resiliency of this great country. Some of that resiliency is already in evidence. But we need to remember that for today's students, they face a future that looks far different than it did three weeks ago. We must also remember that our nation's strength derives from a commitment to freedom and democracy that makes America still a beacon of hope for humanity. And our universities have a crucial role in the preservation of these essential values. And this is the second longer-term challenge facing us. In the commitment to freedom of expression and freedom of inquiry, we must be models for the nation. America faces difficult choices in the months and years ahead. How to strike a balance between civil liberty and security at home, and a balance among diplomatic, economic, and military actions abroad. By drawing upon the accumulated knowledge of our faculties, our universities have much of substance to contribute to this discussion. To be most effective, we must be willing to tolerate dissent from a national consensus, but we must also resist convergence toward a consensus of dissent. 
our universities must remain places where opinions on every side can be expressed and subjected to critical scrutiny. This is the great legacy of the Enlightenment that inspired both the founding documents of this nation and the intellectual tradition of its universities. From James Madison through Woodrow Wilson to our own time, Princeton has helped to shape this great tradition. The challenge that President Tillman will share with the rest of us who lead educational institutions is to hold participants in the coming debate to the same standards of evidence and reasoned argument that have governed the advance of knowledge throughout Princeton's 255 years. We must encourage today's students and tomorrow's scholars to adopt the same mode of thinking that Thomas Jefferson urged upon his nephew, Peter Carr, when he wrote, fix reason firmly in her seat and call to her tribunal every fact, every opinion. Lay aside all prejudice on both sides and neither believe nor reject anything because other persons have rejected or believed it. Your own reason is the only oracle given you by heaven. I don't imagine that the tasks that I have just described were highlighted in the job description that the trustees gave Shirley Tillman six months ago. But somewhere in the fine print, it undoubtedly said, the president will need to rise to unexpected challenges. We know that she will. President Tillman, we wish you well. We offer you our warmest support as you lead Princeton in the nation's service, in the service of all nations, in the service of reason and freedom. Thank you. Thank you, President Levin. Harold Shapiro, the 18th president of Princeton University, will present Shirley Tillman to take the oath of office of president. Professor Shapiro. Mr. Chairman, I am pleased to present to you an exceptional teacher an internationally renowned scholar, a wise counselor to students and faculty, and an important advisor to many, both on this campus and well beyond. As I present Princeton's next president to take publicly her oath of office, I would like to express my personal delight, excitement, and satisfaction that I have the good fortune to be able to pass on the responsibilities of the presidency to a leader of such personal warmth, intelligence, understanding, and integrity who has the capacity to lead Princeton to new levels of distinction. Mr. Chairman, Princetonians everywhere, now and in the future, will always be proud of what you are about to do. Mr. Chairman, I present to you and to your fellow trustees, Professor Shirley M. Tillman, to take the oath of office as the 19th president of Princeton.
Dr. Tillman, please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I do solemnly swear. I do solemnly swear that I will support the Constitution of the United States. That I will support the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. So help me God. I do solemnly swear. I do solemnly swear that I will bear true faith and allegiance. That I will bear true faith and allegiance to the government established in the state of New Jersey to the government established in the state of New Jersey under the authority of the people under the authority of the people so help me god so help me god i do solemnly swear i do solemnly swear that i will faithfully impartially and justly that i will faithfully impartially and justly perform the duties of the office of president of Princeton University perform the duties of the office of president of Princeton University to the best of my ability to the best of my ability so help me god so help me god Thank you. Faculty, students, staff, trustees, and neighbors of Princeton University, distinguished guests, family, and friends, it is a deep honor for me to assume the office of 19th president of this great university. I accept with both eagerness and humility knowing full well that I follow in the footsteps of predecessors who have provided Princeton with extraordinary leadership over the past century. Presidents Goheen, Bowen, and Shapiro, all of whom are present to witness this beginning of a new presidency, have provided us with a legacy that is envied in all quarters of higher education a legacy that we will cherish and protect, but also that one that we will use as a strong foundation on which to build our future. Our vision of that future was forever changed by the tragic events on September 11th at the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and in a field in Pennsylvania. In the aftermath of those events, I modified the address that I had been writing in order to speak to you about what is foremost on my mind. President Bush, in his address to a joint session of Congress last week, declared war on international terrorism, a war whose form and outcome are difficult to imagine. Given the enormous challenges and uncertainty that lie ahead, what is the proper role of the Academy during this crisis and in the national debate we are sure to have? How can we contribute as this great country seeks the honorable path to worldwide justice and to peace? Today, 
The Academy holds a highly privileged place in American society because of a long-standing national consensus about the value of education. Another one of my predecessors, President Harold Dodds, said in his own inaugural address in 1933 that no country spends money for education, public or private, so lavishly as does the United States. Americans have an almost childlike faith in what formal education can do for them. That faith is based on a conviction that the vitality of the United States, its creative and diverse cultural life, its staggeringly inventive economy, its national security, and the robustness of its democratic institutions owe much to the quality of its institutions of higher education. The spirit of democracy is now reflected more than ever in our educational system, with opportunities open to students of all stripes, from 18-year-old freshmen to senior citizens, from students given every imaginable advantage by their parents to students who spent their childhoods living on the street, from the New Jersey-born to students from around the globe, from students who were ignited with learning from the first day of primary school to high school dropouts who came to formal education through the school of hard knocks. If you will forgive a biologist the impulse to use a scientific metaphor, the American educational landscape is like a complex ecosystem full of varied niches in which a rich variety of organisms grow and thrive. Our society's confidence in our institutions of higher education are expressed through the generous investments of the federal and state governments in basic and re applied research, investments that wisely couple the support of research to support for graduate education. It is also expressed through federal and state investments that subsidize the cost of higher education for those who cannot afford to pay, investments by private foundations and char charities who see colleges and universities as the best routes for achieving their strategic goals, to the private sector who see universities as the incubators of future health and prosperity. But in return for this broad support, Society rightfully expects certain things from us. It expects the generation of new ideas and the discovery of new knowledge, the exploration of complex issues in an open and collegial manner, and the preparation of the next generation of citizens and leaders. In times of trouble such as these, it is especially important that we live up to their expectations. The medieval image of the university as an ivory tower 
with scholars turned inward in solitary contemplation, immunized from the cares of the day, is an image that has been superseded by that of the modern university constructed not of ivory, but of a highly porous material, one that allows free diffusion in both directions. The academy is of the world, not apart from it. Its ideals, crafted over many generations, are meant to suffuse the national consciousness. Its scholars and teachers are meant to move in and out of the academy in pursuit of opportunities to use their expertise in public service, in pursuit of creative work that will give us illumination and insight, and in pursuit of ways to turn laboratory discoveries into useful things. Our students engage the world with a strong sense of civic responsibility, and when they graduate, they become alumni who do the same. This is as it should be. Yet the complex interplay between society and the academy also creates a tension, because the search for new ideas and knowledge is not and cannot be motivated by utilitarian concerns. Rather, it depends on the ability to think in new and in creative ways, to challenge prevailing orthodoxies, to depart from the status quo. We must continually strive to preserve the freedom of our students and our scholars to pursue ideas that conflict with what we believe or what we would like to believe, and to explore deep problems whose solutions have no apparent applications. This is not a privilege we grant to a handful of pampered intellectuals. Rather, it is a defining feature of our society and an essential investment in the continuing strength of our character, our culture, our ideas, and our material lives. When the Nobel laureate John Nash developed the mathematical concepts underlying non-cooperative game theory as a graduate student at Princeton, he could not foresee that those concepts would be used today to analyze election strategies and the causes of war and to make predictions about how people will act. When Professor of Molecular Biology Eric Wishhouse set out as a young scientist to identify genes that pattern the body plan of the fruit fly embryo, he could not know that he would identify genes that play a central role in the development of human cancer. We have learned that we cannot predict with any accuracy how discoveries and scholarship will influence future generations. We also have learned that it is unwise to search only in predictable places, for new knowledge often depends 
upon preparing fertile ground in obscure places where serendipity and good luck, as well as deep intelligence, can sprout. Freedom of inquiry, which is our most cherished organizing principles, is not just a moral imperative. It is a practical necessity. But just as we have an obligation to search widely for knowledge, so we also have an obligation to ensure that the scholarly work of the Academy is widely disseminated so that others can correct it where necessary or build on it or use it to make better decisions, develop better products, or construct better plans. In the days ahead, I hope that our country's decision makers will draw on the knowledge that resides on our campuses, from historians who can inform the present through deep understanding of the past, philosophers who can provide frameworks for working through issues of right and wrong, economists whose insights can help to get the economy back on track, engineers who know how to build safer buildings, scientists who can analyze our vulnerabilities to future attack and develop strategies for reducing those vulnerabilities and scholars in many fields who can help them understand the motivations of those who would commit acts of terrorism here and throughout the world. American universities have been granted broad latitude not only to disseminate knowledge, but to be the home of free exchange of ideas where even the rights of those who express views repugnant to the majority are vigorously protected. Defending academic freedom of speech is not particularly difficult in time of peace and prosperity. It is in times of national crisis that our true commitment to freedom of speech and thought is tested. History will judge us in the weeks and months ahead by our capacity to sustain civil discourse in the face of dis deep disagreement, for we are certain to disagree with one another. We will disagree about how best to hold accountable those responsible for the attacks of September 11th. We will disagree about how broadly the blame should be shared. We will disagree about the ways in which nationalism and religion can be perverted into fanaticism. We will disagree about whether a just retribution can be achieved if it leads to the death of more innocent victims. We will disagree about the political and tactical decisions that our government will take, both in achieving retribution and in seeking to protect against similar attacks in the future. In sum, we will disagree 
about how and when to wage war and how best to achieve a real and lasting peace. The conversations we will have on our campuses are not intended to reach a conformity of view, a bland regression to the mean. Rather, we aim to come to a deeper appreciation and understanding of the complexity of human affairs and of the implications of the choices we make. Perhaps, if we're very dedicated, we will find the wisdom to see an honorable and yet effective path to a world in which terrorism is a thing of the past. With generosity of spirit and mutual respect, we must listen carefully to one another and speak with our minds and our hearts guided by the principles we hold dear. By conducting difficult discussions without prejudice and without anger, by standing together for tolerance, civil liberties, and the right to dissent, by holding firm to core principles of justice and freedom and human dignity, this university will serve our country well. By doing so, we will be true patriots. Let me now turn to the third obligation that we have to society, the education of the next generation of citizens and leaders. Princeton's view of what constitutes a liberal arts education was expressed well by Woodrow Wilson, our 13th president, whose eloquent words I read at opening exercises. He said, what we should seek to impart in our colleges is not so much learning itself as the spirit of learning. It consists in the power to let the ambulance go by. I take up President Wilson's words. It consists in the power to distinguish good reasoning from bad, in the power to digest and interpret evidence, in the habit of Catholic observation and a preference for the nonpartisan point of view, in an addiction to clear and logical processes of thought, and yet an instinctive desire to interpret rather than stick to the letter of reasoning, in a taste for knowledge and a deep respect for the integrity of the human mind. Wilson and the presidents who followed him all rejected the narrow idea of a liberal arts education as a preparation for a profession. While understanding the importance of professional education, they made it clear that at Princeton we should first and foremost cultivate the qualities of thought and discernment in our students 
in the belief that this will be most conducive to the health of our society. Thus, we distinguish between the acquisition of information, something that is essential for professional training, and the development of habits of mind that can be applied to any profession. Consequently, we celebrate when the classic scholar goes to medical school, the physicist becomes a member of Congress, or the historian teaches primary school. If we are do our jobs well as educators, each of our students will take from a Princeton education a respect and an appreciation for ideas and values, intellectual openness and rigor, practice in civil discourse and a sense of civic responsibility. During these troubled times, our students and our alumni will be called upon to exercise these qualities in their professions their communities, and in their daily lives. By so doing, and through their leadership, their vision, and their courage, they will help to fulfill Princeton's obligation to society and bring true meaning to the motto that many have already quoted here today, Princeton in the nation's service and in the service of all nations. Thank you. On behalf of President Tillman and my fellow trustees, let me thank all of you for being present to bear witness along with us to the installation of an extraordinary new leader. Let me also remind you that you are invited to join President Tillman at dinner, a concert, and dancing, in other words, the party is about to begin, to begin at Weaver Field shortly after the close of the proceedings. There is a formal program that begins at 6. Now we will close in the traditional way, and I'm pleased to invite and ask Associate Dean of the Faculty and Faculty Marshal Catherine Rohrer to lead us in the singing of Old Nath's song.